Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. We've got something a little different for you on this week's episode of the podcast. That's right. We're going to play you some of our favorite moments from our online Indie Fest conference, which took place last Saturday. We have clips from Governor Steve Sisolak, Congressman Mark Amaday, former Senator Harry Reid, and many more. To lead into all of that, our fearless editor John Ralston gives us his thoughts on the event before we hear those highlights. But before we get to the rest of our show, I sat down with our healthcare reporter Megan Messerly to break down the newest numbers and latest developments of the coronavirus pandemic. Megan, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. All right, Megan. So before we get into anything else, as always, we're going to start with the numbers. So noting that we're recording at about four in the afternoon on Thursday, October 8th, what can you tell us about the data? Right. So we're sitting at just about 84,000 COVID-19 cases statewide as of right now, Thursday afternoon. Uh, Again, these are total cases since the beginning of the pandemic in March. This is the running total Um, In general, we've seen, I mean, we've talked about on this podcast the last couple of weeks that we've seen cases kind of, uh, they were decreasing obviously for a while, and then we saw a couple of weeks of of increases, and really they've kind of reached a little bit of a plateau. They've been kind of fluctuating uh, up and down, so we're kind of waiting to see where the data goes from here, but over the last week at least, it doesn't seem like cases have been significantly increasing. Still, we're kind of at this, this, you know, higher than we'd like to be level, right, of the number of new cases being reported each day on average. Um, As of right now, we're at 1,649 deaths statewide. Again, this is since the beginning of the pandemic um, and about uh, 76,000 total recoveries. So kind of where we're at right now, looking at the cases, looking at the hospitalizations, obviously, you know, like I said, cases are a little bit higher than where we might want them to be hospitalizations are still in that kind of plateau range. We've seen a couple days of a little bit higher uh, numbers, but it's still been within kind of this range where it's been for the last couple of weeks. Uh, Again, worth noting that we expect hospitalizations to lag case numbers. So if we're going to see an increase, we probably wouldn't quite be seeing that. And then in general, we've seen um, deaths remain low as well. But again, those tend to lag cases by about five weeks in terms of the trends. So Essentially, we're just keeping an eye on where the numbers are. You know, public health experts have been keeping an eye on flu season and just as it gets colder and, you know, there's less opportunities for being outdoors, the situation may change. Uh, Obviously, it's still uh, a little toasty right now, so we're not encountering that as much as maybe some other states are as things are cooling off. Um, But we're expecting that to contribute to, you know, potential spread uh, this, this fall and winter, just as people are no longer to gather in the same way outdoors that they might have otherwise. Hmm. So a big coronavirus story this week uh, was something to do with what happened last week. So the governor moved to uh, uh, loosen some restrictions on large gatherings and basically open up the the largest venues in the state, um, things like stadiums, showrooms, etc. We find out this week that some of the health uh, experts in Clark and Washoe County weren't actually very happy with that decision because they were left out of the decision making process. Can you explain what happened? Right. So there was this letter uh, sent to the governor's office by the heads of the Southern Nevada Health District and the Washoe County Health District. Uh, it was a pretty scathing letter expressing their displeasure about what happened with that directive on public gatherings. Essentially, um, their concern was they felt like they hadn't been involved in the process. Um, in one case, the Washoe County Health District said that 
you know, before the governor had even finished uh, his announcement, there was, uh, they had gotten a request in to, for, from someone requesting permission to hold a large gathering, sort of suggesting that others had more foreknowledge of this uh, than they had. Uh, they were informed uh, the night before, which they actually said had been more uh, forewarning than they'd gotten uh, on previous uh, directives and changes coming down the pipelines. They said at least they'd gotten a little bit of advance notice. But essentially, they were frustrated. They felt like they hadn't been brought to the table in the conversations. And, you know, they were saying, okay, as Southern Nevada Health District, Washoe County Health District, and then Carson City Health and Human Services, collectively, they are the health authorities for 90% of the state. So they were saying, hey, we need to be at the table on these conversations if we're going to make a big decision, like raising the limit on gatherings from 50 to 250 people. Their other concern, and we've talked about this before, but public uh, local health authorities have felt uh, really stretched thin by this pandemic, right? They have to do more contact tracing. They've been underfunded for years. They just don't have the staff they need to do everything that's being uh, requested of them in this pandemic. So their other concern was that they're um, in this new uh, gathering directive, there's a role for them to review plans for gatherings that are even larger than 250 people. There's a clause in there that says if you want to have an event bigger than that, if you're one of these sort of really large venues, uh, you can have an event that's up to 10% of capacity, but you have to have this whole plan and entrances and exits and divided into different sections. There's kind of all these different caveats. And so that directive included a review role for the local health districts. And part of their concern was, hey, we've already been asked to do so much during this pandemic. Uh, if you're going to ask us to do one more thing, you know, we'd like to be a part of that conversation before you just, uh, you know, tell us that we're going to do this. So as you can imagine, uh, well, this letter, first of all, got, got leaked. Um, the Las Vegas Review Journal was the one to first report on it. Uh, the governor's office was not very happy about the fact that this came out into the public sphere. Um, they responded in a letter Monday evening, uh, essentially it was worded kind of nicely, but there was, <laughs> there was this kind of like scathing undertone to it as well. Um, one, they're really frustrated that this letter had gotten out into the public basically insinuating that the health districts had leaked this information and that, you know, that this is not the right way to go about things. You know, the, the governor's office hadn't even had a chance to formally respond in the form of this letter. So that was part of it. But then they also made this argument saying, you know, the governor had said for a couple of weeks that he was reviewing, uh, reviewing the existing guidelines on public gatherings. So you knew that this was under consideration. So why didn't you come to us? You, you know, you knew we were working on this. So why didn't you you know, bring this up um, in any of the ongoing conversations that you have with state officials, even if it wasn't specifically on this topic, there are sort of these open channels of communication between the local health districts and the state. Um, the other point that the state, uh, the governor's office brought up as well was the fact that um, local government officials were involved in these conversations. So they were saying, hey, maybe there's a disconnect between the, you know, local health agencies. So, you know, say the Southern Nevada Health District, which, you know, does public health for Clark County, and then Clark County officials. So they were saying, maybe there's a disconnect because we were talking to local government officials. So maybe, um, maybe there's just some disconnect there. Maybe you need to talk to your local government folks and figure out why you weren't part of that conversation. We assume that, you know, if the if the county was on board, that meant that the local health agency was on board as well. So that was part of their um, pushback. And Essentially, uh, Kevin Dick, the Washoe County um, Health District Health Officer, on a press call on Wednesday, uh, noted that they, you know, had a meeting scheduled uh, for Wednesday. They were going to work out some of those issues. Um, they said, you know, they were also upset that the letter got out into the public. 
Um, and essentially they were trying to, I think, smooth things over a little bit saying, okay, now we're going to try to work on this together and have this conversation and, and figure out where we go from there. So, you know, right now things seem to be, you know, they're trying to mend some of these, these wounds and, and things have not been smooth going. Uh, you know, a, a pandemic is sort of a difficult situation all around. So we've seen uh, over the last few months, some of these little tensions uh, bubble up, but right now it seems like they're trying to work on getting things to a better place than, than they were when things bubbled up um, on Friday and over the weekend. Wow. Okay. Well, as always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where Megan has a weekly coronavirus contextualized story and where we have a routinely updated coronavirus data dashboard. You can also follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Messerly. And Megan, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. All right, and so I am here with our fearless editor, John Ralston, and we finished IndieFest this last weekend, and uh, now we're kind of post-IndieFest. John, how do you feel like it, it went? I'm still uh, needing to recover, Joey, but uh, <laughs> I need more sleep. But I have to tell you, I couldn't be happier with, with how it went. Everything exceeded my expectations. The lineup that we got, the reporters were all uh, tremendous uh, in terms of doing, doing the interviews, and none of them are used to that kind of uh, setting. And I thought they all rose to the occasion and showed why we have such a remarkable team uh, and, and, and your help too, Joey. Uh, I don't think people know how much you do for this uh, enterprise behind the scenes and that we don't, we don't even have to fix your spelling errors too much in the, in the explainers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hopefully not. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So, you know, what were some of your favorite moments that, that happened during IndieFest? Yeah, I was involved in a bunch of them. And, and listen, I think people really, uh, there's a historical artifact that exists, Joey, with that hour-long interview with Senator Harry Reid. He just does not sit there for that long. And he said a lot of interesting stuff. And, and I think I've gotten the most feedback on that. But I thought that Riley's interview with, with the governor uh, was actually really excellent and, and showed how emotional uh, Steve Sisolak can be about some of this stuff. He was very animated, defensive at times, I thought, but uh, Riley got a lot out, out of him. I also thought that both of the panels that were moderated uh, by Megan and Michelle, um, uh, the, the one with the legislators and Jackie, the, the, the one about the economic future were really interesting discussions, and, and, and I hope people go listen to them. And of course, the other memorable moments were Mark Amaday essentially admitting that he is uh, interested in running for governor right in, right there at IndyFest. People will remember that's where he essentially announced his interest. And, of course, the final panel uh, where David Axelrod and Carl Rove proved that you can't actually essentially shut up John Ralston for an hour, uh, which they accomplished. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know it was possible, but apparently exactly. now we know, how to, you know, we know how to end Zoom meetings quicker. We just got to call up David Axelrod and Carl Rove. <laughs> that's right. So... We've got we've got a, a few a few clips from some of the best moments from IndieFest. But if you want to listen to the whole thing, John, you can kind of tell us you know how to do that. So you can actually watch individual panels, or you can uh, purchase the whole uh, IndieFest, uh, Joey, uh, online. Now all you got to do is go on the IndieFest button right there near the top of our website, and, and you can see them. It's 
very, very cheap to do so. And, and you can pay a hundred bucks and get the whole thing and watch it over time. So uh, I think it'll live on for a long time. And I think we will get people continue to be interested. And we may even see some of that stuff used in campaigns, Joey. Yeah, that's right. That would be very interesting to see, actually. And, uh, you know, I think we're already chatting about next year's Indie Fest, so you keep your eyes out for that as well. But, John, thank you so much for kind of leading into all of these clips, and now we're going to get to some of the, uh, the best moments from Indie Fest. You bet. These first few clips are from our panel with Governor Steve Sisolak, John, and reporter Riley Snyder. This first clip is after Riley asks about the education budget and whether or not the state needs to raise revenue. We have to do an overall deep dive, and I was hopeful that I'd be able to do it this session as it relates to our, our revenue and our expenses. Unfortunately, the longer this pandemic goes on, we're looking at getting by for another session. We're looking at, you know, piecemealing this thing together again with Band-Aids and bubblegum. And that's unfortunate because at some point we're going to have to have a real serious talk about how we are going to fund our education system. Uh, the thought of doing it on sales tax and being so regressive is not a particular delight to me. Uh, I get calls every week about lotteries and various things. And I think everything's on the table. I've met with some of the finest fiscal ex experts. Jeremy came up and we had a lengthy discussion. He gave me a list of potential fees and whatnot, but frankly, most of them are, again, you're going to get, not to make light, it's a million here or five million here. It's not going to be the number that we need to really make an impact. So those are really serious discussions that we have to have. And uh, it's just a question of when, whether or not we'll be able to do it this session or not. This next clip is also from the governor and what he thinks the state will need to do to deal with the budget deficit. As we get closer to February and the session coming in uh, to, to Bean, um, what is your plan to address public school funding? And on the back end of that, can that conversation happen without any new revenue entering the picture? Well, <clears throat> those are great questions and one that uh, provides me some sleepless nights, quite frankly. Uh, I do not know what to expect come February. I don't know what to expect come October 4th quite frankly. I mean, the way this is going right now and things come out of the blue, uh, we had a pandemic, we got an economic downturn. Uh, I've got a president now that contracted COVID and we don't know how his health is going to be. I don't know how our economy is going to uh, improve moving forward in the next year. A lot of this is going to be dependent on uh, our COVID numbers, you know, how things progress, how any potential vaccine or therapeutic might progress for us to be able to respond to, to uh, any uptick or any surge in terms of uh, exposures. Uh, I don't know how our numbers are gonna come back. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to get some weekday traffic here, I, I sat with the resort folks and they explained to me that they can get people in here on a Friday and a Saturday night. And then on Sunday, there's a 14 mile tie up on I-15 headed back to Southern California. But you know, you get Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the hotels are empty. We don't have any occupancy. The rates are going way down. Folks are getting their hours cut. So we looked at trying to come up with a plan that will allow them to have some smaller meetings. We're not talking conventions like CES or, or the home builders. We're talking smaller meetings of 250 people or if they took two rooms, 500 people, 
that they can get folks in. Now understand, if you get a meeting room of 250 people coming for a meeting, they're probably going to sell 200 rooms for that meeting. That's a big number because those are people that are going to eat in the restaurant, they're going to stay in the rooms, and we're going to get room tax revenue as a result of that, which will provide for funding for other things. So we're adapting a, a wait-and-see approach and monitoring very closely as we get close to the legislative session. Uh, it, it's tough. We're going to need revenue at the same time. Do you want to raise revenue at a time when people are struggling so severely? So uh, there's going to be a lot of decisions had to make, and I'm going to seek the input of an awful lot of people to help me make that decision. This last clip from this panel is Governor Steve Sisolak addressing issues people have had with Dieter, the Department of Employee Training and Rehabilitation, and how it's handled unemployment, after John asked if he's made any mistakes or second-guessed any of his decisions as governor. We get more emails and comments about this than any other subject right now, as I'm sure you do, and that is uh, the, the, the state's unemployment insurance system and and the backlog and 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 people just being so frustrated. Actually, it oscillates between frustration and desperation, as you know, Governor. And most people are, even though Riley did a phenomenal story showing how it has been underfunded in the past, most people are pointing their fingers at you and saying, you didn't think this through. This is your fault that this has occurred. That, that it's one thing to shut the state down. It's quite another not to prepare for all of these people who are going to be unemployed and are waiting months to get payments. Did you make mistakes? Have you second-guessed yourself on any of that? Absolutely not. We did not make a mistake. Any governor with, that is sitting in this chair, Democrat, Republican, and you had four of them on previously that I have respect for all of them, will tell you that the Dieter system, the unemployment system, has been underfunded for decades. Well, now it finally came home to roost because we had such an enormous demand on the system. Now, I contend, and I'd encourage you, Riley, to go to some of these other states. Go to California and see what they're facing. Go to Michigan. Go to Illinois. And they've got the same, if not worse, unemployment situations than we do. Now, our unemployment reached an all-time high when it bumped up against 30%. I give you that. But what we had is an antiquated, underfunded system that simply could not handle the amount of volume. Then the federal government comes in with a complete new program, this PUA program, complete new program. Nobody had ever had that before. It says, okay, this is what we're going to give out, administer it. But we couldn't keep up with the first program, much less the second program. And we're doing the best we possibly can. I can assure you that we know people are hurting. I know if there's one person out there, I ran into a gentleman yesterday that hadn't got unemployment for four months. Uh, I know that they're hurting and we're doing everything we possibly can to help them. On the same side, when I talk to the Secretary of Labor and I say, look, we need some help and you know, can we just pay these people and try to recoup the money? And their answer is if you pay them and we find out in a month or six months or a year that they shouldn't have gotten the money, you gotta pay the federal government back. Well, let me tell you, if I do that, you know the criticism that would come in six months when we have to pay back hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, there has to be a checks and balance system. It got so difficult, John, you know I lost Heather because of death threats to her. I mean, you put people in there, and I know folks are frustrated. I feel their pain. But to lash out at the employees of the department isn't the way to solve the problem. We have people 
an enormous amount. Right now, what I've got with Barbara Buckley and Elisa Caffarato, who've done a great job, and you've known Barbara, John, as long as I have, and she's a, a rock star in terms of getting this done. And she realizes the magnitude of these problems. We have an overabundance of fraudulent claims. You see this when somebody gets stopped and has, you know, 100 uh, unemployment, you know, debit cards in their car. Or you see this, uh, the uh, article written about the amount of shopping that's done at the high-end stores in, in, by Aria with people that are using unemployment cards to go buy, you know, $3,000 purses. Other people need it to get by, and I understand that. But the fraud is real. We do not have a state income tax in Nevada. Back to your previous question, Riley. But the downside is we don't have the files set up, the criteria for state income tax that we could cross-reference the claimants versus did they ever file state income tax and are they real people? We don't have that. So we get people that are filing that don't exist, that they're filing in every state, <coughs> that they're trying to play the system. Now, if I'd had my way, would it have been better? Yes, but there's nothing I can think we could do to handle the unemployment system uh, quicker and at the same time be as safe as we could possibly be. I know it's a shortfall. It's been a shortfall for every administration that's existed. Uh, I think that we have to do more. We will do more so that when we're done with this pandemic, we leave the system in a better place than it is now. But it's hard. These people, I'm telling you, that are handling these claims, and we're down to the ones now that had to be have to be adjudicated on a case-by-case -case basis. So a claim might take 20 minutes. It might take an hour and a half to talk to one person and find out what they are. There's always an underlying issue with these, whether it's they moved here from another state and their work record is another state. We have to get that. They forgot their password, so you can't get back into the system under their name. They can't get in there. There's a question about there's a change of name, a change of circumstances. The employer objects and says the person wasn't laid off. They just didn't want to work anymore. There's always a reason behind the ones that are declined. Now, we are trying to work through them as quickly as possible. And I can tell you, when I see the line of folks at the food banks that are waiting to get meals for the kids, and I see the demand on rent assistance for people that are uh, looking for assistance to to pay their rent. I know folks are hurting. I get that. And we're doing, we've extended the eviction moratorium. We're doing everything we possibly can. And rest assured that the Dieter office is doing everything they possibly can. All I can say is I'm sorry. I'm truly sorry that we are not further ahead on this, but it's not because of a lack of effort. It's because the system was simply not set up to handle this kind of a crisis. This next clip is from our Future of the Economy panel as Steve Hill, president of the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, talks about travelers coming back to Las Vegas. Uh, frankly, leisure travel probably comes back, certainly, almost certainly will come back more quickly than business will. Uh, business travel is very important for Nevada. Uh, it is what drives occupancy during the week. Uh, business travelers spend more than leisure travelers do. Um, largely because their employer are paying for the travel cost, paying for lodging, maybe paying for food and beverage, um, gives them a larger budget. Um, those travelers and our 6.6 .6 million uh, convention and meeting attendees every year 
um, really help make Las Vegas strong. And um, we'll go from solid uh, back to vibrant um, once that convention and meeting industry recovers. Um, that'll we'll we'll see meetings and conventions come back. Um, attendance will probably be a little light early on um, and recover over the next couple of years. Now we hear from Dr. Tiffany Tyler Garner, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Alliance, as she talks about the multiple places of the economy that are being affected during the pandemic. Given the magnitude of this crisis, there is no way to go from a 3.5% unemployment rate, like one of the lowest since 1976, to the highest in the country, like depression level at 30% in a span of less than 90 days and not anticipate a fallout in multiple areas, including the housing challenges that we are seeing, the food insecurity, and even an impact to a number of our special populations that were already going into the pandemic with barriers or challenges like special youth populations, like youth aging out of foster care. And so I, I hope that as a part of this process that we will begin to look at or, or transparently embrace the ways in which a number of systems are doing double duty. So as we um, weathered this in education, there was a, a call to return to schools, not only because we want to educate our children, because we also were leveraging school for folks to go back to work. Currently, women are leaving jobs at four times the rate of men to remain home to support and educating their children. Those types of changes to our workforce or economy are um, things that persist long beyond this crisis. Even if we just look at uh, the ways in which it changes the, the wage trajectory for uh, it by gender. The next panel we hear from is the former governor's panel with former governor Brian Sandoval, Bob Miller, Richard Bryan, and Robert List. In this clip, John asks about regrets during their time in office, and Brian Sandoval has this as his answer. No, thank you, John. And and I think I can speak for all of us is you always feel like you could have done more. Um, you know, I really wanted every day to be something where I made a difference in in somebody's life. Probably the, the issue that, that I most think about is the mental health crisis that um, occurred uh, during during my administration. And I still recall it coming to my attention that an individual who was a mental health patient at the Ross and Neal Hospital in Las Vegas had been sent to Sacramento and he'd wanted to go to his home in Sacramento, but when he arrived, there was nobody waiting for him. And he ended up at a homeless shelter and it was discovered that, um, that he had been sent from Nevada and it was presented that he had been sent randomly. And, you know, at the time I saw that solitary incident and I wanted to look into how that, how that could happen. And then we found out that there were other patients that had been, had, who had wanted to go home, had self-selected that they wanted to go, um, you know, to their home and with their families or friends. But again, um, the arrangements had not been made for them when they arrived and they had no services. And it became a, a national story. It was presented that uh, Nevada had randomly um, sent mental health patients. I think they called it Greyhound therapy. Maybe even you said that, John. Uh, but but in any event, <laughs> um, you know, I took that um, that very personally and discovered that there were systemic issues that need to be needed to be addressed. 
Um, we put tens of millions of dollars into our mental health system, and frankly, that was what informed most of my decision associated with opting in on the Affordable Care Act because it allowed for many more individuals in our state to, to receive the, the mental health care that they received. So in terms of, of regrets, um, I probably should have taken that, that situation more seriously sooner. I didn't understand or realize that it was as big a problem as it was, and, and it really, um, I suppose I'd say for the rest of my, my term, really um, put a sense of urgency on any issue that came to my attention to make sure that, um, that we addressed it right away. But I'd like to have some of that time back if I could go back. Now in this clip, former Governor Bob Miller talks about what Nevada needs to do looking into the future and his thoughts on the current governor. I don't think that I have a crystal ball, uh, you know, like the old Johnny Carson late at night to tell you uh, what the future is. Uh, I know that uh, I believe Governor Sisolak has done a very admirable job um, when given the task to try and ascertain what works for Nevada. Uh, the fact that there's 50 different opinions because there's really not a, an effective national policy. Uh, how do you balance life and safety and health of the citizenry and the economic consequences of further restrictions. Uh, certainly a simple answer uh, that isn't too burdensome is the requirement to wear masks. Is that the only answer? I don't know. We face a more difficult situation than a lot of other places because we have more visitors from other states uh, and countries for that matter uh, who might bring virus with them Maybe they come from lower standards uh, than we impose here in Nevada. But the economic consequences, which we don't talk about too much at, at this point, are going to be very significant because uh, there's just not the income in our primary sources of revenue, particularly gaming. Uh, I, I mentioned my re recessionary experiences in 91. We cut $170 million out of the budget. Um, a $170 million cut out of this budget is next ensuing budget isn't going to touch the reality of the economic forums projections for revenue. Uh, they're going to have to be a balance for trying to decide whether additional revenue sources are necessary, uh, as well as, uh, cuts in expenditures. Uh, it's a tough time, but we've, we've got to go through it as cautiously and as thoroughly as possible. And I see that's what it appears that Governor Sisolak is trying to do. So uh, I sent him a text early on and said, you know, in my 10 years as governor, I faced the recession. I faced uh, the riot in West Las Vegas. There was a flood in Reno. Uh, our workman's comp system was hundreds of millions of dollars underwater and numerous other things. But all of them together don't amount to what you're facing. God bless you. And now we turn to a conversation between John and a man who needs no introduction, former U.S. Senator and former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. This next clip comes just after John has asked about the likely confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, and whether or not a Democratic president should push to pack the court and add more justices. Let's take a listen. 
Uh, indeed, you went, you went even further than what you just said in an interview that was published a few days ago in, in The New Yorker by Jeffrey Tubin. Let me just read the quote for everybody from, from you, Senator. I think it's time that we did something after the election, something very publicly. We should hold some hearings, educate the public about the history. We should show that we've changed the number of justices in the past, and we may have to do it again. You are essentially suggesting that Schumer should pack the court. I, it's not a question of packing the court, it's a question of doing what the Constitution allows us to do. And I also want to make sure that viewers understand what I really am string, strongly in favor of, and that's the filibuster. The filibuster is, it's not a question if it's going to be gone, it's only when it's going to be gone. The filibuster has outlived its usefulness. You can't have a democratic body that allows 60% of the vote, you need it to have a simple majority. And the sooner we get that done, the better off we're going to be. And it's going to happen. It's not a question. I repeat, if it's going to be done, it's when it's going to be done. And I think it's going to be done next Congress. Well, the filibuster, at least part of the reason it, 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 it was formed in the first place was that the Senate was supposed to cool the passions of the, of, of the House, right? And this was one way to try to slow things down. Why do you think that time has passed, Senator? Because it has now been used as a, not as a shield, but a sword. Uh, what, what McConnell has done to the United States Senate is remarkably bad. The Senate doesn't do anything anymore except approve judges. They don't do legislation. Rare occasion they do legislation. They do nothing but judges. There are no amendments. The Senate is really doing nothing. And I think it has shown the American people that time has come to change. Now, it would still be a cooling off body. We have the House two-year terms, Senate six-year terms. It's a bicameral legislature. So it would work out just fine as the Founding Fathers sought it, uh, said it would be. But to continue the way we are now with 60% of the vote required to get anything done is not good. And it's, it's on its way out. I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. They printed that. It's, and I feel very strongly about that. You know, you have in past interviews that I've seen, you've chafed at the notion that you're partly responsible for what's happened in the Senate for it being a broken institution because of what you did in 2013, if I have the year right, in, in nuking uh, the filibuster for lower court justice. You opened the door for what Mitch McConnell uh, has done now, the polarization, the what's happened in the Senate. You don't take any responsibility for that, Senator? John, I'm so glad you asked this. I'm glad to have the chance to explain. Obama had been elected president, very popular president. During his first Congress, for the first time in the history of the country, the Republicans filibustered the Secretary of Defense, who, by the way, was a Republican, Chuck Hagel of Nebraska. We had the second most important court in the country, the D.C. Circuit. We had six or seven vacancies there. The Republicans wouldn't allow us to fill them. They filibustered everything. He could not get his cabinet officers uh, accepted. He couldn't get his sub-cabinet officers. Obama's presidency was going down, down, down. So this very popular president, we did something, I did something, I'll take the blame for it, that had been done in the past. It wasn't the first time the rules had been changed, but we changed the rules. What did we do? 
we said that with a majority vote, you could get cabinet officers done, sub-cabinet officers. We made it so that Obama's presidency became a success. He will go down in history as one of the great presidents. Why? Because we passed Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. We passed the most significant change in Wall Street in the history of the country with the Dodd-Frank legislation. We did lands bills. We did all kinds of things which wouldn't have happened. And remember, we made it so that the Supreme Court, it took a supermajority to get a Supreme Court justice approved. We didn't change that. The Republicans changed that. But I, and looking back, I'm so glad we did this. It allowed the country to have the things I've just talked about and more. Uh, and it made Barack Obama, this great man, become a great president. Well, let's let's talk, take it from a layman's point of view. If, if 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 Americans think that just when you don't like the way things are being done to to a president who is a Democrat, that the Democrats will change the rules. Similarly, the Republicans can do that. It doesn't that doesn't that erode faith in in the system, Senator? If you can just change the rules at any time. I'm not saying you specifically, but if if the head of the Senate can do that. John, that's what the Senate's all about. It's not a static body. Senate's changed over the years many different ways. No, I, I think that it's something that is incumbent upon leaders of the Senate to recognize when it needs to be changed. And there is no question with the, um, when Obama was elected, the Republicans publicly said they have two things in mind. Number one, he won't be reelected. They failed in that miserably. And second, they were, they succeeded on this one. They said, anything he tries to do, we will oppose. So, no, I think that uh, we did the only thing that was good for the country. John also asked Reed about his famous, or maybe infamous, brand of cutthroat electoral politics. Well, you're, I mean, the rhetoric that you use, the tactics that you use, you won't like this word, but I'll use it anyhow. You were pretty cutthroat. You were pretty tough. You said some things that I know some of your critics said were intemperate, right? Well, you know, I uh, there are things that I did. Uh, I did it because even though it was the right thing to do, I couldn't get anyone with the courage to do it. For example, yeah, as you know, uh, I, when Mitt Romney was running for president, I... Uh, Claimed, I claimed with some substance, because I didn't make it up on my own, uh, someone who had worked with him and in business with him said you should take a look at his taxes, see what he's paid in the way of taxes. So I went to DNC, tried to get them to do something about it. I went to President Chief of Staff. I went to everybody. They were all too f- afraid to do it, so I did it. There were a number of things that I did because the rest of no one else would do it. And I have found over the years that if I couldn't find someone else to do it, I wasn't be a tepid guy and drawing into a cocoon. I would go do it myself, and I did that on lots of different things. And I'm, as I look back, I'm glad I did. There's no question that you did some things that that benefited the state that no one else would have been willing to do. You, you and I have talked before about what you did when what, during during the Great Recession when when some of those strip properties were in big trouble and you went to went to the banks and uh, I, we we can choose our verb uh, whatever you want to say you persuaded them you threatened them whatever you did that's one thing but the Mitt Romney thing it was it's interesting you brought bring that up. 
uh, Senator, is uh, after the election, I think it was Dana Bash of CNN interviewed you and basically said, listen, this turned out not to be true. And your response to that was, well, Mitt Romney lost, didn't he? Uh, and so that is kind of the ends justify the means uh, that, that, that I think some but, people would question, right? But I that may be an answer to one question, but there's no doubt in my mind that what I did was the right thing because it was something that we now have, except for Trump, people show people what their taxes are. And so I have, I don't regret what happened in that regard. But Mitt Romney did pay taxes for the 10 years that you said he didn't, right? He never showed us his tax returns, never did. He, he, his accountant gave an outline of his taxes, never never showed us the taxes. But so you, you know, still the believe- point is, I, the, point, the point is I met with Mitt Romney uh, personally. Uh, we had a meeting that was set up by Levitt who had been the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. He arranged a meeting in his home and uh, Mitt and I sat down and talked about the things that we did uh, against each other that was probably wrong and shook hands and that was the end of it. So uh, looking back, could I have handled it differently? Perhaps, but what I did at the time I thought was the right thing to do and uh, I don't, as I look back, I don't feel any guilt whatsoever. Uh did you hug Mitt Romney at the end of that meeting? No, I don't hug. I don't hug people much, especially with coronavirus. Next, we'll turn to a conversation between indie reporters Megan Messerly and Michelle Rendells, and a handful of state legislators, including Democratic Senator Dallas Harris, as well as three members of the Assembly: Democrat Danielle Monroe Moreno and Republicans Alexis Hansen and Tom Roberts. In this clip, we'll hear from two of them, Senator Harris and Assemblyman Roberts, as they tackle a question on the state budget from Megan. Um, You know, knowing where we're at right now and knowing how unpredictable these next couple of months might be and where we're all going to be at as a state in February, I think we're all expecting to have some pretty tough budget conversations again in the 2021 session. And so, I mean, that means either cutting money or raising taxes, right, which is obviously a hard conversation to have. The governor in our last panel just mentioned, you know, raising taxes in the middle of, you know, an economic crisis when so many people are struggling is a really difficult conversation to have. You know, families have been struggling, small businesses have been struggling. So I wanted to start off, um, maybe Senator Harris, you could take this question, but is there any kind of tax proposal you would support in the upcoming session? And what areas of budget do you think we can cut from? Well, um, I'll tell you what, after the special session, I don't know how much more there is to cut. Um, we, we had to take, as, as uh, Assemblywoman Monroe Moreno pointed out, $1.2 billion. I mean, we cut it down to the bone. Without raising any additional revenue, that was our only choice. Um, and so I am actually hopeful that when we go back, what we can have a discussion about is where, where can we add funds back? Um, I'm hoping that it's not a discussion about where we can cut further because uh, the I think the hard answer is uh, there's not much more to cut. Um, you know, we don't want to raise taxes on people in the middle of a pandemic. We also don't want to be cutting health care in the middle of a pandemic. We need to be offering mental health services. We need to be making sure that our children, uh, you know, are supported uh, when they're doing distance education. We need to make sure we're putting money in so that they can go back to school in person safely. Um, This is really not the time to be cutting our budget any further. 
As far as is there any tax proposal that I would support? Of course there is. Um, we're all going to have to give a little bit. Mining is willing to come to the table. That, I, that is music to my ears because I need mining to come to the table. I need everyone in this state to come together and we're all going to have to give a little bit uh, so that we can make sure that our state is healthy financially and that we take care of the least among us. Um, that's that's really my hope. I think that there are plenty of opportunities to uh, create new revenue. Uh, Assemblywoman uh, Neil has some creative ideas. Uh, it's not all about uh, increasing the sales tax on people. Uh, it's not all about increasing property tax. Uh, there are several levers that we can pull uh, and we should pull them all. Roberts, I'm hoping I can bring you in on this question, sort of the same question I posed to Senator Harris. You know, is there any kind of tax proposal you could support in the upcoming session? And if not, I mean, what should be cut from the state's budget? Is there room to cut? Well, if I can go, go back to the, the mining uh, discussion a little bit, you know, and, and mining is uh, willing to come to the table. I, I think they've, they've said that. And I think it's important to also realize that Mining also pays taxes that are underneath uh, the purview of the legislature, not just the net proceeds. Uh, they pay payroll taxes, they pay sales taxes, they, you know, they pay uh, the commerce tax. So they're, they're contributing there and, and obviously it, they're not exempt from those taxes. Now, when it comes back to revenue, you talk about the cuts that we made uh, during the special session. Yeah, they were very painful. We cut some, some programs and some things that uh, we really didn't want to. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to, to note that uh, under the CARES Act, and the federal government has invested almost $20 billion into our state in a variety of different funds. And a lot of it is going to some of the things that actually Senator Harris uh, suggested, uh, distance education uh, and, and our, uh, getting our, our teachers back to school, uh, you know, getting in the classroom. There's a number of those, those funds that are, that are put into that that bucket. I, now, whether or not that will bridge the gap, I think most of those need to be spent by the end of this um, calendar year. There may be another stimulus uh, package that is going to be put through. Uh, so before we start talking about increasing revenue on a stressed economy where our, our gaming revenue, our businesses aren't even allowed to open up to 50%, some of them, some of them are going to be closed forever. I just don't, I just don't believe that tax discussions are, are, uh, are, I believe they're a little premature until we really see what our revenue gets back to and, uh, and, and what the, the playing field looks like. Finally, John and I also spoke to Congressman Mark Amaday, who's represented Northern Nevada's 2nd Congressional District since 2011. Amaday has been a mainstay in the state's Republican politics, but since 2018, he's been the only Republican among the six representatives Nevada sends to Washington, D.C., with that history in mind, let's pick it up with a question from John. Let me just ask you about something you and I have talked about many times, and that's the future for Mark Amaday. I know you wake up some days, maybe more days than just some not wanting to come back. Uh, I thought maybe last time was your last term. Uh, I, I, this, this dovetails with a question that a Republican asked me, a Republican who really cares about the party and wonders where all the moderates uh, have gone and named Brian Sandoval. Uh, have you thought about coming back to run for governor in 2022? You know what, John? It's uh, 
And, and first of all, as a fairly simple guy, don't say simpleton, but just as a simple guy, um, you know, it's, it's, it's flattering to have your name mentioned in that. But, but, but I got to tell you right now, as we sit here 30 days away from an election, which is not for governor, um, I, I can tell you one thing. If I don't prevail on, on November 3rd, nobody's going to care what my plans are because I'm old fashioned enough to say, hey, you can't get beat and then come back and say, hey, I'm the answer. So we're clearly focused on that. Um, I, I will tell you this, um, as that guy who grew up respecting the office and the people who serve in it, whether they're your party or not, I'm still that guy. Um, I, I've been frustrated with, with, with some of the tone um, that, that Governor Sisolak has used during the pandemic. I think ultimately he was right in terms of you need to do masks, you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, but but in, in terms of me going, okay, on November 5th, hopefully there'll be some results in CD2. Um, on November 5th, I'm going to pivot to something else. It's like, if that's, if that's something that, and, and you know, cause you've been around, it's like, I'm a guy from Carson city, Nevada. The last guy who, who was able to, to do that, uh, that, that deal in a statewide sense, um, seriously for governor was Brian Sandoval and Brian Sandoval did it because he was like four days, you know, a week in Las Vegas, which he should have been. And you need to be. And so if it's one of those things where I, I can tell you this, um, I am more and more focused as a guy who's, you know, almost as old as you are about, uh, I want to come back home um, um, at some point in time and not some point in time when I got to come back home and, and people heard I'm in a rest home. And so hopefully that's a long ways away, but nonetheless, um, uh, we'll see. I, I got to get through, I've got to get through November 3rd and, and we'll see what, what that says. And then after that, we'll see. But, but, but I'm, I'm also a guy who's, who's never been, I'm not good at hiding things. And, and so it's, if that's something I'm thinking about, then I'll say it. Um, and, and we'll deal with that and, and see if that's saluted or, uh, or, or, you know, basically I, I get a bunch of tomatoes thrown at me or something. But right now, um, I, I just think it would be incredibly um, irresponsible. And that's the nicest word I can think of to say, to say, oh yeah, I'm thinking about that sort of thing when it's like, oh, you've got this little thing 30 days down the road that you probably ought to be focused on, which we are. And we're going to wrap up uh, here. And uh, before I let you go, though, uh, I'm going to ask the one final question. And instead of giving your usual 10,000 word answer, I'm going to ask you to give a one word answer. And it is the okay. follow up. So you are not ruling out running for governor in 2022 no okay that's what i was hoping to hear thank you for listening to this episode of indie matters we'd like to thank megan messerly and john ralston for being on the show this week as well as the speakers and registered guests who participated in indie fest we truly appreciate everything you brought to all the panels to create something very special and informative. If you want to watch the entirety of IndieFest or catch a discussion panel you missed, go to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, and click on the IndieFest button on the sidebar. You can purchase the whole thing for $99 or rent or buy one conversation for just a few. If you bought a ticket to IndieFest, make sure to check your email as you'll have access to all of those panels free of charge. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email us at joey at the or jacob at the 
And if you want to sponsor the podcast or any of our other events, you can email editors at thenvindie.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. You can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer, Jacob Zola. And we'll talk to you next week.